John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Latira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Joe. Um, should we pray together? And then we'll, we'll look at that. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would shine the bright light of the great news of who you are and what you have done into our hearts and lives today, that we may be those who reflect your light in the world around us. Amen. Well, last week, as we, um, as we kind of started on this apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Revelation of Jesus Christ, we did our best to create an ap- apocalyptic atmosphere in here, right? I mean, it was absolute mayhem going on, and, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was wars and pestilence. I'm pretty sure I saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, some, you know, somewhere over here, and, um, and I'm sure that some parents were hoping it was actually the end of the world, because they'd have been happy to have, uh, to have disappeared. But, um, but we, we had to work hard last week, didn't we, to focus in on the main thing, which is itself is a good lesson uh, as, as we head into Revelation. Um, but don't worry if you didn't get much of it, because we're going to dig a little deeper into a lot of what we saw last week today. So, uh, and if, if this is your first time with us today, then, then you'll be able to catch up pretty quickly. And, and also, just uh, so you know, our, our, um, our sermons go on the website, so you can always catch up and listen to them in a the week if you want to do so. But as, as we start out in verse 4 today, we're reminded that Revelation is a letter. And, and the letter kind of starts properly in verse 4. And we're going to dig a bit more into what we saw last week. And, and that is who the letter is to, who it's from, and what the heart of this letter of Revelation is. And in doing that, we'll see what difference 
it makes in our lives. So first, you want to see who the letter is to. And, and really, the heading here could be, My Suffering Kingdom People. You see, it comes from John, verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia at the end of the first century. But we need to remember, it's not actually from John. It comes from God, and John is the first recipient. We saw that last week. We didn't really look at it too much. But in verse 1, there's this chain where, where God gives this revelation to Jesus. He gives it to John via an angel, and John passes it on to Christians, to churches around. And the churches in what is now modern Turkey. So, so John is receiving this letter along with these Christians. And, and the really significant thing in verse 9, the really significant thing about John and the Christians who receive that letter is that in Jesus, they, have, uh, they share the suffering and the kingdom and the patient, patient endurance. You see, this is the package deal of Christianity. In Christianity, in Jesus, we receive the kingdom and we also receive suffering. John was the, the last of, um, of Jesus' closest friends, his apostles, who's alive. This is near the end of the first century. And so, so John, over the years, has seen and heard of every single one of his close mates, Jesus' first followers and apostles, who have all suffered violent deaths for their faith in Jesus. And here John is, an old man himself, and he himself is a political prisoner on exile in the Mediterranean isle, isle of, island of, of Patmos destined to die himself in exile under arrest. You see, this, this is life for Christians in the Roman Empire. It was no walk in the park. It, and, and it would certainly feel to them at this point, yeah, we know we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We know that very much. But it doesn't quite so much feel like we're sharing in the kingdom of Christ. And yet at the heart of this, John says, no. Ours is the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus Christ. So this is a lot of God's people in the world through history. This letter is for us too. I said it briefly last week, apocalyptic writing is loaded with symbolism. And one of the things we'll see as we go through is very often numbers are significant and have depths of meaning, so we need to grasp their relevance. And in Revelation, the number seven is perhaps the most significant number of all. So whenever we see a number seven, and we're going to see it a lot, as you'll see as we go through, it's got some significance. And what the number seven represents is perfection. It represents fullness. So he writes to these seven named churches. And, and Joe did very well, kind of listing out those names. I'm not going to try and do the same thing. But those aren't the only churches that existed across the world at that time. There were other churches around. And we know they're certainly not the only churches that have lasted through history, are they? There's many more churches. See, these seven churches represent the church in its fullness, the universal church across the world at that time and right down through history. And so all that to say is that this letter is for you and it's for me. It's for the Gate Church in 2021. And it is for us who share that same suffering and that same kingdom in Jesus. We are those who experience more difficulty in life because we trust in Jesus and seek to be witnesses of him. And that is why it's such a tragedy that for so many of us, the book of Revelation remains unopened because it leaves us less well-equipped to deal with the experience and the reality of facing those things. And it's perhaps why it's not surprising that this week I read about a missionary who works in a part of the world where, um, where there's direct and serious life-threatening opposition to people for being Christians. 
And they said when they asked the local Christians about their favorite books of the Bible, or I think they said their favorite book, they said it's the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. Because in the end, it tells us that our God wins. See, in those parts of the world, this book is very precious and is open very much, I'm sure. Here is the helpful reality check for us. You see, suffering is obvious and unavoidable. You don't need me to convince you of the reality of suffering. Trying to live faithfully as a Christian, you'll experience it in so many different ways, big and small. But the thing that we need to be reminded of, the thing which is so often less obvious and so apparent to us, is that we are part of a kingdom. We are receiving the kingdom of God. Verse 6, we are made to be a kingdom and priests. And you know, when it feels more like you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ and less like you're sharing in his kingdom, we can remember this greater reality that will outlast our suffering. We are a kingdom people. This letter is to the kingdom people who are suffering. And so who's, who's the letter from? Well, well, the heading here is that it's from the great God with love. You see, it's a love letter. It comes with deep love and affection. It's just this greeting in verses 4 to 8. On, um, well, in, 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 if you've got a red Bible, it's in your left-hand column there. I don't know what it looks like in the, in, in the scripture journals. But it's just, it's just oozing with, with, with this love. He writes of grace and peace to you. And it comes from the one who loves us, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so we need to remember this, this letter of Revelation is, is this love letter. It's, it's got all of this intimacy and this care and this concern as if, as if the person who is closest to you in the world is writing to you from a place of love and care and writing to bless and encourage and help you along the way. So it has all of that intimacy and yet it also comes with great power. I don't know who the most impressive person you've ever got a letter from is. I was trying to think for me and I think... I think the most, I think it's the letter that we all got from Boris last year about COVID. I think that's about the best I've got. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But, but say you got a personal, proper, handwritten letter from someone who's like really important, say the queen or something, or your favorite celeb or whatever it is. You would read that letter carefully, wouldn't you? And, and you would treasure it dearly and you'd read it over and over because it comes with some sort of gravitas and power and authority. Well, would you see who this letter of Revelation is from? It's from the, the great, unchanging three-in-one God. We see it there. It's just three verses four to eight. It comes from the Father who was and is and is to come. It says that twice. The one who is the Alpha and Omega. That's the beginning and the end, the Almighty One. This is kind of just this way of a time-bound creature like John and us trying to grasp it at this reality of who God is, the God who is eternally present. The God who is always near and always with us in all of history. The one who precedes history. The one who who rules all over it. And from the seven spirits before his throne. There in verse um, 4. Or or the footnote helps us. It could be the the sevenfold spirit of God. Again, it's fully loaded with meaning. That number seven again, the perfect, the full Holy Spirit of God. whose, Whose presence is always perfect, always before God's throne. And of course, from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loved us, the one who freed us from our sins by his blood, the one who is coming again in power and glory, the one who every eye will one day see. 
So this is the God, this is the great God who writes this letter to us. From this great God comes a letter of loving concern. Now, if if you just put yourself back as a Christian under this Roman Empire in those early days, Rome was known as the Eternal City. They found this graffiti on this, um, in the ancient city of Ephesus that said this, Rome, your power will never end. And at this point, the midpoint of a thousand-year reign uh, of Rome, when Rome was really at its heyday in, in how much it ruled and, and what its power and authority was, that would have just seemed like the obvious truth. All around the Christians were these displays of authority and power and splendor and the greatness and wealth of Rome. But here in this greeting is a reality-adjusting perspective. No, it's not Rome's power that will never end. And history has taught us that lesson, hasn't it? But it's the power and the glory and the reign of King Jesus. He will have the power and the glory forever and ever. It is the God who is, uh, who, who is and who was and who is to come, whose kingdom in the end will be fully established. What hope and what encouragement to these beleaguered, to these embattled Christians being picked off by the might of Rome, being put out of business, struggling, suffering under the great empire of the day. Yet Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the one of all glory and power. It's not obvious now, but this is what this is showing us. And we've seen it, haven't we, over and over through history, not only Rome, but Egypt and the Persians and the Greeks and the Ottomans and our own empire and the Soviet Union and one day it will be the American and the Chinese. All of them will come and go. But through it all, the reign of Jesus continues. At the moment, it's subtle. It's unseen. We see it by eyes of faith. We see it in texts like this. We don't always see it in life around us in the world. But it does span across the globe and it does last the ages. And one day we're promised here that all will see and all will acknowledge that Jesus is the king of the rulers of the earth. And many will mourn because his kingdom has come and they're found on the outside of it. So that's who this letter is from. So that means we want to pay attention, we want to listen up. For it comes from this great God and this great king. Well, here's the big thing. What's at the heart of the letter? The heading for this, really, is I want you to see someone. I want you to see someone. We saw it last week. The core revelation is the revelation, the revealing, the showing of Jesus Christ. And this is what God wants his suffering kingdom people to see. He says, look at this, the risen and reigning Jesus. That's what we have in, in verses 12 to 20, the curtain is peeled back on on reality, and we have this first portrait on our tour through the Revelation Art Gallery, okay? This is our first vision, our first picture, and it's the first of three big visions of Jesus that are the big pieces in this art gallery. If you like, they're the main exhibits, and all the other visions, all the other stuff we see kind of gathers around these three big visions that we see through the book of, of Revelation. Here's the first one, and it's the vision of Jesus, and as we gaze at it, we want to remember that in apocalyptic, images reveal these other deeper realities that we are to grasp. It's all about seeing the big picture and the big idea. You know, we have to say, don't miss the wood for the trees. It applies really well here. Imagine looking at, um, 
uh, like an imp a piece of kind of um, impressionist artwork. You know, like Monet, where I think, you know, they just use lots of little dots and really tiny brushstrokes to build up the picture. And, and to appreciate the picture, you need to stand back and see the whole thing, right? And see how the whole thing, if you kind of zoom in on a little corner, you might get some interesting detail and all the rest, but you're not really going to get what the picture's about. You're going to get lost in, in, in the detail. And so with these visions, we need to stand back and, and see the whole thing, see the big picture and the, the, main, thing, the main themes, and not get bogged down in arguing over, over minute details. So verse 11, John hears this voice telling him to write on a scroll what he sees and send it to the seven churches. And so John turns around to see where this voice comes from. And, and as he does so, he can't believe his eyes. He says he sees one like a son of man. But John recognizes him. It's his old friend, Jesus. And yet he's different to when he last saw him. The last time he saw him, he looked like a fairly ordinary middle uh, Middle Eastern guy with some pretty decent scars as he kind of floated up into the sky, into heaven through the skies. And not long before that, he saw this man, Jesus, and he looked pretty broken and beaten and bruised as his body hung limply on a cross. To be honest with you, he looked pretty pathetic. But here is this old friend of his from a completely different perspective. In fact, it's the same perspective that the prophet Daniel had 600 years before when he had a, a similar vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, that was given to Daniel at a time when God's people were also threatened to be overwhelmed and overcome and consumed by worldly empires. And Daniel described his vision saying that he saw one of authority, glory, and sovereign power, one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And John's seeing in his friend Jesus the same stuff. I don't know if you've ever had it, but it's like you've got a mate that, um, you know, just seemingly ordinary guy or girl, you've just kind of hung out with them, they've been your friend, you've had a laugh together, you know, nothing too spectacular. And then you discover they're actually like the king or queen of some far-off kingdom somewhere, and they're actually, you know, they go back to their country, and, you know, everyone's bowing, and they've got great power, you know, it's a little bit like coming to America or something like that. Very powerful and full of authority and and it's eye-opening. You're just my mate, but this is who you are. Well, the details, as we go through of the, this vision, closely reflect what Daniel saw, and they broadly have the same significance. As, as we just work through from verse 12, just dwell on how you are to respond to these things. Put yourself in John's shoes. We're told he has a, a robe and a golden sash. This is the, the dress of the splendor of, a, of, of royalty, of a king, and of priestly dress, representing this majestic reign and power over all things, and, and also the nearness of his presence as, as a priest. We're told that his head is as white as snow, and he's got these eyes that are like blazing fire. Reveals something of his profound honor and his wisdom. And these eyes that see all things with a penetrating and a pure and a holy insight. That nothing is hidden from him. This is a, a bit like a really good and a really pure version of the eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. This, this perfectly good eye that sees all things and, and knows all things. And his feet, we're told, are like bronze glowing in a furnace. 
just revealing the strength and the power and the stability and the endurance of his kingdom. He is, he's unmovable and, and unflinching and unyielding. He's solid and stable. It's hard to put it together as you read it through, aren't you? You can't really reconstruct it, but there's this image of this sharp, double-edged sword that's coming from his mouth, showing that he has the power and the strength of the word of, word of God. The sword of the Spirit is under his control, is under his influence, and it is wielded, whereas a double-edged sword, both to save and also to judge. And his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Just this overwhelming glory and brightness and purity and goodness of this warrior who fights on behalf of his people. You can't, you can't put these things together in your mind. You, you really struggle to draw it. it. The overall impression, though, is crystal clear, isn't it? This is someone else. This is someone of great glory, of great power, of great authority, of great goodness and purity, someone of such strength. And he is worthy of all praise. This one is worthy of all honor and glory. He is worthy of our respect and of our worship. These aren't just things to be grasped in our mind, but they're to be delighted in in our hearts. Which we overcome with all before him. And we're to bow down before him and say, behold our gods. And you see, that's exactly what John does. He sees this, sees this vision, this unveiling, this revealing of who Jesus is. And all of these things that show him and, and speak to him, these truths about who Jesus is. And he's just overcome and overwhelmed. And he falls on his, feet, uh, he falls on his face at his feet. He says, as though dead... Just overwrought. Wouldn't you do the same? This is Jesus Christ. This is who he is. You know, the cross of Christ is rightly the defining image of Christianity. Absolutely central to our faith, isn't it? Without Jesus' death on the cross, we'd have no hope, no life, no faith at all. At the gate church, you want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet, while the cross is central, absolutely central, it isn't the current reality of Jesus. His work on the cross is a once-for-all event. It's a finished work that is done and dusted. And Jesus didn't stay on the cross. But he was taken down and he was laid in a tomb. And from there, he rose from the dead and then ascended to this place of glory and power in heaven. And so while the cross remains deeply relevant to our everyday lives and is the, the center of our faith, we must remember it. We must also remember that it is at the heart of a bigger story. And not lose sight of the plot line around which the cross only makes sense in. We need to remember the before and after of Jesus that Daniel and John have given us insights into. I wonder if too many of us have diffused the power and the glory and the authority and the greatness of Jesus. And so he doesn't have that power and authority and greatness 
and glory in our lives and in our discipleship because we fail to appreciate this is who he is now. We cut this stuff out. We leave it behind. You know, if you saw Jesus in a vision today, this is the sort of stuff you would see. If all we see when we think of Jesus is him on a cross, then we're missing something big and very important. Now, we must see that. Of course we must. But isn't it so much more amazing when this is the one, this Revelation 1, man, the son of man, this God-like figure is the one on the cross. That's something else, isn't it? Certainly our culture hasn't come to appreciate the glory and the power of Christ. And so it patronizes him and it, and it pities him and it dismisses him as this weak, nice guy dying on a cross who history left behind. But no, he's not that. No, he's not that. He is the one who is, who was and is and is to come. So don't just live in the reality of what he's done in the past but also live with the reality of who he is today and the reality of what he's one day going to do. This is our Jesus. Listen, to close, I just want us to... But there is a few more minutes here, sorry. It's a long close. Um, I want us to think about why it matters so much. What difference does this make? Well, quite simply, I think it gives us courage and confidence as Christ's people. Do you see what Jesus says to John? He, he comes and he places his right hand on him. Just imagine you were John. This is the right hand that's holding these, these seven stars. And this is the voice that sounds like trumpets and like mighty rushing rivers. He puts his hand on him and starts speaking to him. And if you're John, you're like, oh, what's going on here? What's he going to say? Do you see what he says? What verse is it? Verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Listen, John. Listen, first century church around Turkey, around Asia. Listen, the gate church in 21st century Birmingham. It seems like the Roman Empire. It seems like the culture of your day in in the West is great and mighty and powerful. It seems like it will never end. But I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive and I reign forever and ever. So don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of its empires. Don't be afraid of your culture or anyone in them. Don't be afraid of anything else for that matter. But how can we not be afraid, Jesus? That command, most repeated command in the Bible, do not be afraid, pretty much always comes with the promise, but I am with you. That promise isn't said here, but it's shown here. Do you see where Jesus is and what he's doing? He's standing amongst these seven golden lampstands. He's got these seven stars that he holds in his nail-pierced hands. The mystery of this is revealed to us in verse 20 at the end. The seven stars are the angels, or you could say the messengers, of these seven churches. They're either guardian angels that kind of watch over each church in in the heavens, possible. I think more likely it's the pastors, the leaders, the elders of the church who Jesus holds in his hands as representatives of his church. 
The seven lampstands are the seven churches, Jesus' kingdom people who are suffering and yet who he stands amongst and who he is with, holding in his hands. And so do you see what this means? You may be having an absolute mare this week because of his kingdom. Your family may be at the moment rejecting you, making your life a total misery. Your colleagues may have mocked you on a social after work on Friday. You may be spiritually hyperventilating under the suffocating pressure to go with the flow of the world around you. You may have shared your faith this week and someone just showed you that they think you're absolutely nuts. Total weirdo. But Jesus is with you. No, this Jesus is with you and he is amongst us and he is holding us and we are his and we are under his protection and we are safe. This is the truth behind the way things are. You see, only as Christ is seen for what and who he really is can we see everything else for what it really is. This this gives us a reference point. It, It gives us perspective for the rest of Revelation as we go through it, really importantly, but for our whole lives, it brings reassurance and encouragement that we're all right because he's on our side. Actually, no. We're all right because we're on his side. I, um, I used to play a bit of rugby, and um, whilst I was pretty bang average myself, I got to play with some all right players, and I remember the time when this, um, this Tongan guy joined our team, and in his younger days, he had represented Tonga at the Rugby World Cup, so he had played at, at quite a high level, and if you know anything about people from Tonga and, and kind of South Sea Islanders, they're just, they're absolute, uh, I want to say it respectfully, so they're, they're just, they're massive, <laughs> they're, they are massive, and they are strong, and they are powerful, and they are really, really good at rugby for that. And so you see this man walk in. I'm just looking up to him. He's, you know, he's just like this. And, and you see him walk onto the pitch, and you're just like quaking in, in your boots a little bit. But then you remember the really cool thing. It's all right. He's on our side. I don't have to try and take that guy down. I don't have to try and stop him. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give him the ball, and I'm going to follow him to victory. That's, and that was our plan that season. It's a silly example, but this is the idea, isn't it? This is what is so reassuring for Christians who are in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance. This is our Jesus. Revelation 1 shows us our King. He is with us. He is for us. We are with him. So fear not, suffering Christian. Take courage. This one is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is the Almighty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are not many words to say before you or to you. We are in awe of you, we love you, we respect you. We are not scared of you, but we do 
fear you, for that is right. I pray that as we feel that in this moment, having just looked in Revelation 1 for, you know, and just paused in the midst of our week to do that, would you help us to take those same responses to you into our lives and into our weeks, that we may live with the courage and the confidence that we can have as your people in this world, given who you are. And we look forward to the coming of your kingdom and your glory and your power forever and ever. Amen.